science inches forward one study at a time, and every day we scour the research for new additions that change our practice. Today, we bring you five of them. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlat Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psych NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Last month, Dr. Aiken launched a new feed on LinkedIn and Twitter, The Daily Psych. Every day, he posts a new study that will inform and sometimes change your practice. Because the progress of science never sleeps. To follow, search for Chris Aiken MD on LinkedIn or follow his Twitter handle at Chris Aiken MD. Today, we're going to bring you the best studies from the past month. First, a new option for treatment resistant depression. AXS05 is a bupropion dextromethorphan combination that hopes to gain FDA approval for major depression. You probably know all about bupropion, well, butrin. But we're guessing that dextromethorphan is not something you typically prescribe. This drug was FDA-approved as a cough suppressant in 1958. It's still available over-the-counter in medicines like Robitussin and Dayquil. But you might know it through Nudexta, which is FDA-approved for pseudobulbar affect, a neurologic condition that causes uncontrollable laughing and crying. Dextromethorphan has several properties that suggest it might treat depression. Like ketamine, it increases glutamate by blocking the NMDA receptor. And, like an SNRI, it increases norepinephrine and serotonin through reuptake inhibition. Dextromethorphan also has anticonvulsant and neuroprotective effects. And there are a handful of reports suggesting that dextromethorphan does have antidepressant effects clinically, but until now, all of them have been uncontrolled. So what we have now are two randomized placebo-controlled trials that found success for this antidepressant combo in major depression. The first trial was a little small, 80 patients, but it has a more meaningful design of the two trials because this one compared bupropion with placebo versus bupropion with dextromethorphan. What's most impressive in this trial is the remission rates. At six weeks, there were three times as many remissions with the combo pill than with bupropion alone, 47% versus 16%. The second trial is much larger, 327 patients, but this one compared the bupropion-dextromethorphan combination with pure placebo. And since we already know that bupropion treats depression, it wasn't surprising to see that the treatment arm worked in this case. But what did stand out in this study is the speed and degree of the effect of this new combination drug. While most antidepressants separate from placebo at about four weeks, this combo pill separated at two weeks. And the remission rates it generated were also on the high side. 40% had full recovery on it versus 17% with placebo. The main drawback in this study was the high dropout rate in the dextromethorphan combo group. It was 24%. For reference, Dropout rates beyond 20% are 
are considered problematic. While bupropion is often energizing, dextromethorphan can make people drowsy. The main side effects of the combo pill were dizziness, nausea, headache, somnolence, dry mouth, decreased appetite, and anxiety. Other risks to be concerned about with this combo, particularly with dextromethorphan, are addiction, dissociation, and psychosis. And although none of those problems showed up in the trials, which use a very clean population of just having major depression, they are known to occur with dextromethorphan, particularly in high doses above 300 milligrams. In this study, the medication was dosed at 90 milligrams a day, with bupropion at 210 milligrams a day. And both of those doses were divided twice a day. So, should we start prescribing dextromethorphan for depression? It is available over the counter, and 7.5 milliliters twice a day will give you the same dose that was used in the study 45 milligrams twice a day for around $20 a month. I have used it in my practice in depression, and I've had mixed results. But then again, I reserve it for highly treatment resistant cases. Now, if you do decide to use it even before it's FDA approved and you want to add dextromethorphan in, I'll give you a few warnings about it. First, be careful about adding it in with SSRIs and SNRIs because dextromethorphan can cause serotonin syndrome. Second, dextromethorphan has a very short half-life of just two to four hours. But here's a little trick. Bupropion actually extends that half-life by blocking dextrose metabolism at CYP2D6. So there's yet another reason to stick with bupropion. The prescription version of dextromethorphan, that's new dexta, it achieves a similar effect by pairing dextromethorphan with the inert CYP2D6 inhibitor, quinidine. The quinidine-dextromethorphan combo has also been studied in uncontrolled trials of depression, usually to augment antidepressants and usually at a dose of 10 milligrams of quinidine twice a day with 30 to 45 milligrams of dextromethorphan twice a day. And if you do go that route of using the prescription, I wouldn't usually recommend it because both of the ingredients are much cheaper available on their own. And on to number two, lithium treats COVID-19. Shortly after the pandemic began, we interviewed Janusz Rybakowski about lithium. And in that interview, he suggested that lithium might treat COVID. Lithium has pro-immune effects. It raises the white blood count and regulates B and T lymphocytes. But that's not why he made this suggestion. Dr. Rybakowski conducted trials in the early 1980s showing that lithium treated herpes simplex, and it did this by directly destroying the virus, not through pro-immune effects. Since then, lithium has shown antiviral activity against a dozen viruses, including HIV and several coronavirus variants. The new trial is the first to show benefits with lithium in a controlled trial of a clinical population with COVID-19. The patients were significantly ill, all required hospitalization for COVID, 
It was a small trial of 30 patients, and half were given lithium in addition to the hospital's usual therapy for COVID, dexamethasone. After 7 to 10 days of treatment, all outcomes were significantly better in the lithium group. Shorter hospital stay, fewer ICU admissions, and lower levels of inflammatory markers. 30 days later, they followed up to look for long COVID symptoms, which were also attenuated in the lithium group. 40% of the lithium-treated patients had long COVID neurologic symptoms, compared to 73% of the control patients. The dose of lithium was similar to what we use in mood disorders, with a target blood level of 0.6 to 1.2. That is the same blood level used to treat herpes virus. This is good news for psychiatric patients on lithium and promising results for the rest of us. While lithium has risks, it's unlikely to cause much problem with the short-term 7-10 to day treatment used in this study. But if your patient is already taking lithium and develops COVID, watch out for toxicity. Lithium levels can go high when patients are dehydrated, have fever, or take NSAIDs to control viral symptoms. And three, Veronicline shines for nicotine cessation in depression. A few years ago, a friend of mine started Veronicline Chantix with his primary care doctor for nicotine cessation. And the doctor did something I had never heard of before. He called my friend every day to check for suicidal ideation. Back then, Veronicline had a warning about suicidal ideation, and my friend had a distant history of depression. So these two facts had the doctor spooked. That warning probably caused a whole generation of physicians to shy away from veronicline in psychiatric patients, which is a shame because psychiatric patients are much more likely to smoke and have a much harder time quitting. And that warning is no longer relevant. The FDA removed the black box warning in 2016. That was after two studies totaling 18,000 patients, showed no risk of major psychiatric side effects, including suicidality, with veronicline Chantix. One of those studies was the EAGLES trial. A new analysis suggests that veronicline Chantix is not just safe in depression, it might also be the first choice for depressed patients who smoke. This new analysis looked at 6,653 patients from the Eagles trial. That's huge. And they compared outcomes for those who had depression, which was 40% of the group, versus the other 60% who did not have depression. The trial also compared three different nicotine therapies. There was veronicline, Chantix, Bupropion, Welbutrin, or Zyban, and the nicotine patch. And there was also a placebo group. So all of these therapies were used, by the way, in conjunction with nicotine counseling. And here's the bottom line. Veronicline outperformed bupropion and nicotine patch. And those later two were about equal to each other, but better than placebo at least. Veronicline was the clear winner both in depressed and non-depressed patients, after both three months of use and after six months of use. Now, just how much better am I talking about? Well, veronicline was 65% more effective 
than either of the other two. Put another way, patients were twice as likely to quit with bupropion or nicotine replacement therapy compared to placebo, but they were 3.5 times more likely to quit with varinicline. And varinicline was safe. Varinicline did not lead to psychiatric problems more than any of the other treatments, and it was just as safe in the depressed patients as it was in the non-depressed patients. Now, while nicotine cessation is a delicate matter, you need to talk about it with patients, but you don't want to make them uncomfortable by pushing them too hard to quit. If my patient is not interested in quitting, I'll still ask about their use, and I'll remind them that I'm available to help if they ever change their mind. Varinicline was briefly taken off the market last year because it had some contamination in the Pfizer product with nitrosamines. Those are a carcinogen, and they've contaminated a lot of batches of medications in recent years. But varinicline is available once again, and this time, good news, it's in generic form. Check out our May 2022 issue last month for more information about using it. Number four, mirtazapine in OCD. Mirtazapine is controversial in OCD. On the one hand, it might help OCD, as it's a serotonin 5-HT3 antagonist, and other antagonists at this site, like the antinosumeds on Dancitron and Granistron, have successfully treated OCD in controlled trials. On the other hand, some have speculated that mirtazapine may cause OCD by blocking another serotonin receptor, 5-HT2. This is the first randomized controlled trial of mirtazapine in OCD and tested in patients who had failed to respond to a good dose of sertraline, 250 milligrams a day. Mirtazapine was added to sertraline in this small trial of 61 patients, where half received the treatment and the other half got placebo. After 12 weeks, the Y-box OCD scores were significantly lower in the mirtazapine group, 11 versus 19. Mirtazapine was fairly well tolerated although two patients dropped out due to drowsiness. And indeed, dropouts and small size were the main weaknesses in this study, where 24% of the patients did not complete the trial. Bottom line, metazapine is worth trying in patients who don't respond to an SSRI, but will keep an open mind for rare events like worsening OCD on it. And finally, number five, the Mediterranean diet wins again. In May of 2019, we interviewed Felice Jacka on her groundbreaking SMILES trial, which was the first randomized controlled trial to show an antidepressant effect with the Mediterranean diet. Dr. Jacka believed that the diet would work, but she was surprised by the magnitude of the benefits she saw in her study. Compared to supportive psychotherapy, the Mediterranean diet had a large effect size of 1.2, which is much larger than the effect size we see with antidepressants around 0.4. Now, that kind of surprise finding seems like a fluke, but a second trial in major depression found an even larger effect with the diet, 2.4. And then a third randomized controlled trial further confirmed that the diet worked, 
this time in people with depressive symptoms who didn't necessarily have the full DSM disorder, though. That brings us to three controlled trials, all supporting the Mediterranean diet and depression. And now we have a fourth one. And again, the Mediterranean diet comes out with a large effect in this one, 1.5. This study used a very similar design to the original SMILES trial. It was about the same size, 72 patients, and it compared dietary counseling with, again, supportive psychotherapy. A type of psychotherapy, by the way, that's called befriending therapy, where the therapist offers empathy and support, but no real direction. The diet they used was the same as in the SMILES trial, but the patients were different. This trial focused on young men with depression. And the new trial used only three sessions of dietary counseling, a much trimmed down version when we compare it to the 12 sessions used in the original SMILES trial. We reached out to the author about that, and she said that young men simply preferred to have fewer sessions. The bottom line, after four trials, all with a large effect size, we need to start paying attention to what our patients are eating and guide them toward the Mediterranean approach. You can check out our May 2019 issue with Felice Jacka or our November 2021 issue with Drew Ramsey for more information on guiding your patients that way. I also have a handout that I give to my own patients on my website at moodtreatmentcenter.com forward slash lifestyle. That handout describes the same diet used in these trials, and to simplify it, I divide the foods into three categories when telling patients about it. First, there's foods to eat more of. Vegetables, fruits, nuts, beans, whole grains, fish, and extra virgin olive oil. I'll tell patients, replace all of your breads and carbs with 100% whole grains, and all of your oils and butters with extra virgin olive oil. And you can cook at up to 400 degrees with extra virgin olive oil. It is actually less likely to create dangerous polarized compounds at high heats than other oils. Next are the foods to eat in moderation. Dairy, eggs, chicken and poultry, and lean red meat. And finally, the third category, foods to avoid entirely or limit to no more than three small servings a week. Processed foods, fast foods, fried foods, sugary foods, sodas, and deli meats. Those are our top five findings from the past month, but you can scroll through Dr. Aiken's daily posts to find more. There you'll find a link to a new test for dementia that patients can take at home. Light therapy for PTSD, Levotiracetam, Keppra, and Schizophrenia, reviews of the best medications for panic disorder and for rapid cycling bipolar disorder, newly discovered anxiolytic properties of disulfiram, a comparison of cognitive effects on antidepressants, and, on a serious note, a controlled trial that tells us which type of jokes have the greatest benefit in depression. Find him on LinkedIn as Chris Aiken, MD or Twitter handle at Chris Aiken, MD. Subscribe to the full journal online with the promo code podcast to get $30 off your first year subscription or earn CME for this episode by following the links in the show notes. 
Your support helps us stay in the ranks of consumer reports. New Philosopher, Beverage Digest, and the shortlist of other publications that don't accept commercial support. 